Hey, what's up, humans? Welcome to Demystifying Science. Today on the show, we've got a conversation with Dr. Zoe Waller, a researcher at University College London who specializes in the myriad ways that alternative DNA structures affect biological processes. Today's guest, and this entire line of investigation that we're opening today, comes to us as a recommendation from one of our patrons, Sean Kettle. Shout out and big thanks to you, Sean, for connecting us and making today's conversation possible. So if you enjoy the show, you too could consider supporting us on Patreon, where for just a few bucks, you can make sure that we keep the lights on here at the studio. You also get backstage access, where you can help us plan what comes next. Your support means the world to us. It takes a tremendous amount of time to keep up with these regular podcasts and YouTube productions. So please, if you can spare a few bucks, come show us some love over on Patreon. That's all for today, folks. Enjoy the discussion with Dr. Zoe Waller. I think most people, when they think of DNA, if you have any idea about um, iconic scientific images, one of them is B-form double helix, that twisted ladder sort of structure, which is the, I think it's an iconic scientific image of um of the 20th century. So this is what Watson and Crick first proposed as a structure for DNA in 1953. Um, But we've known for a very long time that DNA can do lots of weird things. So even in the early 1900s, if you dissolved guanine or guanosine, which is one of the individual bases that makes up DNA, if you dissolve that, you get a gel. And that shows that that particular nucleotide has forms of self-assembly. And that was that was a long time before people were even really interested in the structure of DNA. And then in the 1960s, um, a lot of work was done to look at how the different bases can interact with each other. And um, a scientist called Hugstein was investigating that. And they found that actually you didn't have to have these matching pairs that Watson and Crick first proposed. They didn't have to match. They could do other things. Welcome to Demystifying Science, where we are exploring the edge of what is known. Today on the show, we have Dr. Zoe Waller, who is doing all kinds of really interesting work concerning the alternative structures of DNA. Normally, DNA is thought of as this double helix, the Watson and Crick base pairing. But that paradigm is expanding, and Dr. Waller studies some aspects of that, and she is knowledgeable about many others. So... Could you go ahead and sort of orient us to what the problems that you're working on in your lab and how you got interested in that, where you're coming from, uh, what's going on? Dr. Waller, welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me, and uh, especially to talk about special types of DNA structure. It's my my favorite subject, so thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, So I think most people, when they think of DNA, if you have any idea about um, iconic scientific images. One of them is B-form double helix, that twisted ladder sort of structure, which is the, I think it's an iconic 
scientific image of um, of the 20th century. So this is what Watson and Crick first proposed as a structure for DNA in 1953. Um, but we've known for a very long time that DNA can do lots of weird things. So even in the early 1900s, if you dissolved guanine or guanosine, which is one of the individual bases that makes up DNA, if you dissolve that, you get a gel. And that shows that that particular nucleotide has forms of self-assembly. And and then also in the 1960s... Is that because the gel has like a matrix to it? Is that what you mean? Um, it's because guanine is really unique in... It's very special in the sense that it's very self-complementary. Mm. So in normal double helical DNA, guanine likes to base pair with... Um, cytosine so you have g and c base pairing so there are four nucleotides a t c and g and g and c love each other but what what we what we know is that g also loves itself um, so so it makes a kind um, of lattice when when it's in solution this gel that you're referring to so it it it, it doesn't make sort of a lattice mm. so guanine um I'd like to think of it like a corner. So it has two um, what we call hydrogen one donors on one side and two hydrogen one acceptors on another side, and they're a perfect complement. So it can form little squares. Um, so they're like corners, but it can also form helices. And this is where the gel formation can happen. So you can have squares of guanines or tetrads that stack on top of each other, or you can have these kind of helical molecules that get entangled and they can form a gel. What is a gel, by the way, just for everybody out there? A gel? I think most people are probably familiar with hair gel. So it's like a semi-solid. So it's kind of um, hydrogels have a lot of water component, but it's not quite a solid. It's not quite a liquid. Um, and the rigidity and component comes from these repeat units? Yes. So something's holding that together um so it's not it's not just a complete fluid like a solution would normally be got it so i didn't mean to derail you i'm just trying to no, understand so this is the first sort of hint that maybe these bases are doing something structural or something other than simply serving as this matched code sequence absolutely and that was that was a long long time before people were even really interested in the structure of dna so they were understanding about different components of it. And then in the 1960s, um, a lot of work was done to look at how the different bases can interact with each other. And um, a scientist called Hoogstein was investigating that. And they found that actually you didn't have to have these matching pairs that Watson and Crick first proposed. Mm. They didn't have to match. They could do other things. And that um, the types of interactions between those bases uh, are now termed Hoogstein hydrogen bonding. So Watson-Crick hydrogen bonding is what you see in a normal double helix. And then Hoogstein hydrogen bonding is basically anything else. Um, so is this the same base pairs uh, interacting in a new way or is it different base pairs interacting? Can... So each of the bases... That, compo that DNA is composed of, so there's four, um, 
each of them has the capacity to pair up with their natural partner, but there are different um, elements of their structure that enable them to do other things. So with guanine, it has a face, part of that molecule has a face that will interact with cytosine, but it has extra interactions on another face of that molecule where it can do other things. Got it. And it's these extra additional capabilities that these bases can do, which then extend the structures that they can form. And so when you when we talk about Hoogstein-based pairing, so Watson and Crick is ATCG, uh, but for Hoogstein pairing, you said that it doesn't necessarily have to be with a complementary molecule. So would the tetrad formation of guanine complexes be an example of Hoogstein-based pairing? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So anything that isn't Watson and Crick is largely described as Hoogstein-based pairing. So it's not like there's any specific types of Hoogstein-based pairing, although the, the, the original ones were the, kind of the classics, but it's anything that isn't Watson and Crick is generally described as Hoogstein, sort of alternative-based pairing, and was alternative it, interactions. Excuse me, was it immediately apparent to folks when they discovered that these pairing possibilities were out there was it immediately apparent that they probably served a function or where did the where are we at right now with the functional aspect of these alternative structures well there's quite a big there's quite a big gap between finding out that the bases can do some other hydro, other types of hydrogen bonding or interactions um, that was the first step towards maybe they do something different. And then in 1962, it was, it was, it was, that was the first time they showed that guanine can form these squares, these tetrads that stack on top of each other. And then um, other structures were shown. For example, in the 90s, it was shown that cytosine could also base pair with itself. Hmm. And they could, you could, so you can have CC base pairs. And um, there have been lots of other structures shown since, but largely we're now looking at, well, we know that these structures now sort of exist. There's plenty of evidence that they might have a biological function. And now actually, what potentially do they do? And initial studies were focused on looking at cancer and how they might be affected, affecting in cancer. And because of, different aspects of looking at where they are in the human genome. And um, so, for example, um, some scientists at Cambridge um, that were led by Shankar Balasubramanian and um, one of the key players in that was Julian Huppert, used all of the information from the human genome and their understanding of which sequences could fold into special four-stranded structures called G-quadruplexes, they correlated what they thought, right? Okay, we, so we know this type of sequence can form this type of structure. Where are they in the human genome? And what does that mean? And they found that the closer you get to a transcription start site, so that's the point at which a gene starts to be read. So this is a very important part in the genome which governs 
is this gene switched on or not? The closer you get to the transcription start site, the more likely you are to find a sequence that can fold into a G quadruplex. So one of these alternative structures. And is there much, has there been work done to sort of look to see how the G quadruplexes change over time? Because I can imagine that if you have, if you have a lot of topology at the transcription start site, it could be a case where it prevents the transcription factor from being able to bind in order to actually transcribe the gene. Or on the other hand, it could act sort of as something that emerges out of an unfolding of the strand in order to actually provide a docking site. But I will say that generally when I've seen transcription factors bound to DNA, the DNA seems to be helical inside the pocket. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, you know, if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find, right? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. And I do think that these structures are probably dynamic. Mm-hmm. So they're not they're not going to be um, always in one form. Because they're affected um, by temperature and pH pretty significantly. Yes, so these structures will be affected by a large number of environmental conditions. And the G quadruplexes in particular uh, are very strong and very, um, um, very stable under physiological conditions. Um, and these can be unwound by particular native or naturally occurring enzymes and proteins so helicases unfold these structures and that's that's actually well accepted and well known um so it does show that biology has a way of dealing with these um so they do they provide a roadblock essentially um but you're right that they could if there might be an equilibrium between the double helix and one of these structures and it might be that the transcription factor that we've seen crystallized with the B-form DNA, if they had looked at the single-stranded quadruplex or eye motif or other structure, they may well find that actually that binds that one better. Can we sort of draw a picture of what these look like for the listeners? What What is a quadruplex or or the uh, eye motif or something like this? Maybe this would allow, allow folks to sort of understand what we're talking about here. So a G quadruplex, I would best describe as a cube-like structure. So to form that, you have guanines that Hoogstein hydrogen bond with themselves, and they form squares. And it's kind of like planar square, right? Yeah, planar squares that stack on top of each other. So um, I think one of my students described as stacked plates, stacked square plates and I was like that's quite cute and but within the core of the structure there's like a um a capacity to bind cations um so small metal ions uh, like potassium or sodium um and so that's the kind of general structure of the quadruplex there are loops of nucleotides that connect these corners so they what's up with um, those metal ions uh, what's what's going on there? I mean, just kind of jump, <laughs> jump. Why, why, are kind of... They, why are they interested? Why are they hanging around? Yeah, yeah um, it looks a lot so like you... a. It kind of looked in a, when I was looking at the picture. It kind of reminded me of like a, a heme group or something strange mm. like that. I mean, I know it has. Just, it just 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 from like looking at it, you know, I know it has nothing chemically similar, but you know, the metal being stuck there just seems really electrically interesting. And some people have used 
these in combination with heme to actually you can quadruplexes have been used as um how best to put it as sort of catalysts for um reactions mm. and things like that and redox potential um but you're right actually heme does have you know structurally a lot of similarities as such because it's planar and then it has a metal in the middle so the metals are there because when the guanines are all in their square formation um they have uh, an oxygen as part of their structure that's kind of all pointing inwards mm. an oxygen is what we call electronegative so um there's a lot of electronegativity kind of in that core so um cations like potassium which are positively charged um, are quite attracted to that. So some cations sit in plane with the tetrad or the square, and some sit between the plates. And this is and this is an unfolded. This 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 forms when the 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 sort of normal helix of the DNA has kind of opened slightly in order to create the sort of this. It's a very strange looking shape, you know. When you look, when we can we can put on the like screen, a wrinkle or something. Yeah, it's like almost like a wrinkle, like it's opened and then it's kind of folded up onto itself in order to create this kind of this bump on the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the eye motifs are very similar. I, so some in some ways similar, in some ways not. So they are also they're four stranded. Mm. So quadruplexes, by virtue you can tell by their name, quad quadruplex um, means four stranded. Um, so the G quadruplexes are composed of four strands. So it's like one strand kind of folding back over itself a couple of times to to get those interactions. Eye motifs are very similar in the sense that they are, again, one strand that can fold back upon itself. But rather than having squares stacked up on top of each other, um, the way that this structure is held together is by intercalation base pairs. And the best way to kind of describe that is maybe if you imagine your base pairs being your fingers and you interlock them, mm. that, that crisscross kind of core of that structure is very tight, very, very different to like a twisted ladder, like the double helix, but also, again, very different to that stacked planar tetrad core of the G quadruplex. So they are, they do look very different. Mm -hmm. Back to the function of these, of these structures, have people been proposing, you know, you, you mentioned there's could be catalytic activity uh, with, with these, uh, would you call that magnesium intercalated also? I, I'm not sure how you, but with, with this structure in general, what, what sort of processes, I know you're talking about it regulating, perhaps regulating binding which could of transcription factors, which could be interesting for cancer or developmental biology. What, what else is going on? What else has been proposed? Um, so yeah, as you, you're right, that people have proposed that they may play a role in transcription. And um, as I mentioned, that you're more likely to find one the closer you get to transcription factor binding site. But um, depending on how you estimate whether something's likely to form one of these structures or not, um, the first study showed or indicated that 43% of all genes contained one of these sequences mm. um, in their promoter region. But 69% of oncogenes, so cancer, related genes contain one of these structures in their promoter hmm. and so 
there seems to be this this relationship between formation of these structures and either cancer development or um, regulation of cancer. So people have looked in are looking into that. These structures also form at the telomeres, mm-hmm. so the the regions of DNA that that, that cap the chromosomes. And there is actually an enzyme called telomerase that can elongate the telomeres. And most of the time in normal cells, this enzyme is is not really active. Um, It's it's very active in stem cells, um, but telomerase elongates the telomeres and essentially kind of makes those cells live longer than they normally would. Um, But 85% of cancers upregulate this enzyme Hmm. and continue to elongate the telomeres so that the cells have no idea how old they are and the older they are the more mistakes they make etc which is kind of was bad and they kind of that's one of the reasons why cancers develop so there's this relationship because these structures form in the telomeres that they can actually stop that process they can actually stop telomerase from working Mm. so that's another area that people have been looking at naturally like sort of like natively as a sort of anti-cancer mechanism or something inside of the cells yes people have been looking at that or potentially Um, as a therapy as well or uh, is there ways to induce these structures Is, is that on the horizon so yeah there is a there's a lot of compounds that have been found to stabilize these structures and some of these have been developed for um, clinical benefit. Um, some of them have gone into clinical trials. Um, I think there are there are some that have that are actually. I don't. I can't think of any that are actually that have made it into the clinic as yet. But there are there are many that are currently in clinical trials that are, that, that, look, that look promising. I think the um, sometimes the challenge with working with these structures is because most people are focused on traditional therapeutic that knowing what we should be doing with these structures and what types of cancers for example we might be want to be targeting might be a bit more difficult to work to work out and understand and we need to do a lot of learning to that to know what we're what we're effectively trying to do i say we like it's it's not particular area that i'm like we need to we need to know what's broken before we try to fix it something like that or we need yeah absolutely and yeah so there's those um but other other conditions so work in my laboratory is funded by diabetes uk which is a uk charity which um focuses on diabetes and we are looking at potentially how we um we could switch on insulin gene expression and um, by targeting alternative dna structures hmm. as well as also potentially being able to look at the sequence of different people and be able to kind of understand what type of structures that might form and does that have a role in their potential to develop diabetes and what have, what have you found in that direction so far that sounds very interesting well we have quite a lot of compounds that switch on insulin um which is cool um and i think working with working with um beta cells is quite difficult um so human beta cells you can't they're very difficult to propagate or grow so if you um there aren't any standard cell lines that you can use so we use a mixture of uh, rodent cell lines and then we're going to use some special fancy 
um, kind of created cell line to look at what we're doing. Mm. Um, but um, these compounds work in cells that don't even shouldn't normally produce insulin. So they uh, so that's that's pretty that's pretty is weird. There, is there any luck with putting that into into animals or or uh, clinical clinical significance or? So um, we are f- currently focused on working out what on earth these 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 do and how they how they work. Yeah, because that's and, kind of an um, astounding result to discover that a cell that's not supposed to be producing insulin when exposed to a sort of a shape changing chemical then starts to produce insulin. That seems like that that in itself is is plenty to mine in terms of mechanism yeah. and understanding. It seems like somebody would want to market that. <laughs> You're such a technologist. Well, yeah, but I mean, it, at the same time, you kind of, that's cool, but do you want all of, you know, if you were to give this as, as a drug, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Please, yeah. Do you, want all, do you want all your cells to produce insulin at the same time, you know? So it's kind of good <laughs> and it's kind of cool, but also... That's a one-way trip, it seems like, yeah. Is, is that what we want? You know, insulin everywhere. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've got to learn more about it, and that's the key thing. Um, this, seems, you know, go ahead. this seems like a very, very difficult topic to study because you basically have something that is shape-based but shape-based on an incredibly small scale and it's something that may or may not be transient and so what are what are the biggest difficulties and biggest successes as well in being able to look into something that is so small and so physical Right, because transcription is an expression downstream of okay, you can measure the RNA, you can measure the protein. There's all of these different, like very well established mechanisms for being able to look at transcription and translation. But shape of the DNA, yeah, like what tools do you use to even know that this is happening? Is yeah. it do you have you done AFM or how does this work? How do you see it? <laughs> how do you see it? Yeah, so. We use a lot of spectroscopic methods to determine the type of structure that DNA can form in. So we actually use some simple methods like UV spectroscopy. Hmm. Um, so we can use only just a UV spectrometer and look at the absorbance of the DNA in the folded state and the unfolded state. And if you subtract one from the other, that gives you a characteristic spectrum that you can use for different types of DNA. So I can tell a difference between a quadruplex, an eye motif, B form, triplex, like other weird structures, hairpins. Um, they all give like a different type of characteristic signature. And that's basically so, just shining a light on it and seeing, you know, what comes the shadow, I guess, if you if you will. The absorbance when it's folded and the absorbance when it's unfolded will give you a different different spectrum. Absolutely. So that's a very simple method that we use to determine what type of structure we've got. Uh, my next method of choice in my lab is called circular dichroism. So this is a, it's a, it's an interesting method. That might be the most uh, scientific word we've had on the show so far. <laughs> yeah. well, well, can we can you say it one more time, actually? What is it? Circular dichroism. Circular dichroism, all right. So it uses circularly polarized light, Mm. which is um, kind of a weird concept. But essentially, um, molecules that are chiral, so that means that they 
um, are can rotate the plane of light, um, but um, but they also have some sort of asymmetry to them. So um, chirality is sort of in inbuilt into DNA because you've got a right-handed double helix. It's always going to have different shapes around it. And because of the different ways the DNA can fold, we can then monitor this, this tiny dimensional kind of change using CD or circular dichroism. So with the quadruplexes, because they're composed of four strands, some of them, if they're all, all, all those strands are running in the same direction, um, we would call that um, parallel. And if they are running in different directions, we would call that anti-parallel. But we can tell the difference between those using circular dichroism. Um, so again, we can tell the difference between different types of DNA structures, but then also... Um, even the sort of like the interior organization of the structure, because you, you said that what you're suggesting is that there can be like multiple different organizations of the strands inside of something like a G quadruplex. Yeah. So we can tell the difference between a G quadruplex and a Lyme motif, but we can also tell the difference between different types of G quadruplexes using that technique. And are these sort of... We can't see it, mm -hmm. but we can get, sorry, get information about it. Has anyone actually sort of, because I mean, I've seen a some studies that I think that there was an uh, something about eye motifs, there being an antibody that's actually capable of binding specifically to the shape. And so like antibodies are the sort of the in vivo shape based assay of choice, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But has there been imaging? Like, is anybody trying to take, you know, uh, like Dr. DeLay mentioned, uh, AFM or, or something that actually you have the structure and you're actually sort of trying to image it or is that too difficult? Yep. SEM even? I don't know if people do that. Or... Yeah, so people people have used AFM to visualize the structure. Like you can see it as like blobs. <laughs> yeah. so, and what you can then do is um, you can produce conditions that you know you're going to form these structures in and you discover those conditions using the techniques that I've just described. UV and CD, nice and cheap and easy. And then you go do your proper experiments using AFM or something similar. And you use those conditions and you go say, well, for example, eye motifs. I know for this sequence, if I take the pH really low, make it nice and acidic, we're going to get more structures form. And then you'd be able to see that actually in the AFM. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how tightly? So right Sorry. in the sense that Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I have a question, but go ahead. I was going to say, um, but the antibodies have also been been used as well. So um, some work that I was involved with last year um, got, pub got published last year, and the uh, principal investigator was Nicole Smith. He's based in Australia. She used, um, so we did some work to show comp a compound that can help stabilise eye motif structure and then she used each of the antibodies one that um visualizes eye motifs and an antibody that visualizes g quadruplexes and in cells showed that if you stabilize the quadruplex you destabilize the eye motif and if you stabilize the eye motif you destabilize the quadruplex by looking at the number of foci 
or individual kind of um, lit up bits in the cell visualized using the antibodies. So that's kind of another way of visualizing them. But we can see them using AFM. Uh, we can, we have crystal structures as some of these these um, DNA structures as well. So that's another another method we use. Do you think that there are others besides the quadruplex and the eye motif that are that are waiting out there to be seen? Or oh, there are already lower loads of structures okay, okay. that are already have already been discovered. So, um, so you can get junctions of DNA, and these have been known for years, like holiday junctions named after Robin Holiday. Hmm. There's quite a lot of these things are, you know, named after the scientists that discovered them. Um, so that junction DNA is like two double helices that kind of crossed over almost. You kind of meet kind of uh, almost like a crossroads. Um, you can also get triplex DNA. So this is where you can have another strand um, that sits in the major groove. So in the double helix, mm. there's a major groove and a minor groove. So one one bit's kind of a bit bigger than the other. And that's how you get that kind of quite snazzy asymmetric um, helix. And um, it's possible to fit in another strand of DNA in the major groove. And that will give you a... Um, a triplex. Um, so that's another structure. And it, it almost seems like an overwhelming like degree of complexity that's emerging concerning this entire transcriptional process. And it's almost like there was a nice happy moment, I don't know, in the early 2000s or maybe maybe the late 90s when everyone was like, well, it's genes make proteins and this should be easy. We'll have it all figured out. We're going to sequence the human genome and you know, we'll basically be able to cure every disease in the next 10 years. And now it's it's almost like the closer we look, and we see this in science in general, anywhere we look in nature, it just gets more and more complex the closer you look at it. Um, I, I just find it fascinating. I don't know if that was a question. I, I just am I, I suppose just, <laughs> I mean, it is amazing. And I suppose my question from that is, what percentage of the DNA is featured like this? Right, because you know, you you look at uh, I think that Hoogstein base pairing is reported to be something like one percent of the DNA. Ish, is that accurate? It depends on what the conditions are. I it see. really is going to depend very much. And how healthy um, the patient is, and yeah, yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that came out of the the Human Genome Project is you know the biggest the biggest like uh, fact. <laughs> that I think is fascinating is the fact we've got like three billion bases and um, only like one percent actually case for protein. Mm. And then they used to think, oh well, all of the rest, you know, this junk DNA. They called it junk DNA in the nineties. That's right. Um, and you can even like I think it's there's even like reference to it on the X Files and things like that, sci-fi at the time because it was it was quite quite exciting that we might have dna that actually is is not used and that perhaps it's a bit like our appendix that once upon a time it was useful but it's just basically i don't know a genomic fossil that we just a leftover from how fast we evolved you know yeah but it soon turned out that if you delete the these bits of junk dna that you see disastrous consequences and that's where the whole 
the whole aspect about learning about non-coding DNA. So the DNA that doesn't code for protein, but is essential to determine how that protein is, is um, essentially read. Um, so the, the DNA read to make the proteins. So then if you've got a lot of DNA that's non-coding, that's a lot of information. It's like an instructional does... content. Yeah, like metadata. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then how that gets read, that can be read in many different ways. And there's there's a whole f- sort of field that's emerged out of um, how your genetics or how your gene- genome gets read and how that varies, but not in terms of how it changes in the sequence, but how your DNA is bookmarked, like with methylation of cytosine, um, or how how um, open or closed the DNA is wrapped around proteins, and all of these play big roles in whether genes are switched on or off, and the number of ways that we can well, ways there are to kind of exploit that seem to be ever expanding. What do you think is, so when you look out onto the world of science and you sort of, you have this, you're, you're studying something that you realize is kind of at the cusp of, of something very powerful, right? This shape-based functionality inside the genome. Do you ever look out onto the world of science and see other things that you're like, you know, I don't think we're right about this. The same way that someone could have looked at the idea of junk DNA and said the same thing? Yeah, there are certain things that I look at and I'm like, no, I'm not sure about that. But then when you don't know the ins and outs of a particular field, it's very easy to look look and go, nah, not sure about that. <laughs> but you know, you know, only when you when you kind of feel like you've got a good understanding. And I, I feel like I've got a relatively good understanding of the DNA structure field and I'm like pretty sure there's something more to this if somebody somebody said oh actually you know B form double helix it just doesn't it doesn't actually isn't actually relevant be like okay yeah I'm I'm on board with that I'm not surprised actually and if someone if there was evidence to show that transcription factors don't bind double helical DNA they actually bind a weird bulge in Hoogstein um, that's Hoogstein hydrogen bonded and that actually the crystal structures that we've seen aren't what is actually dynamically relevant and biologically relevant. But the problem is when you're looking at things that are small, it's difficult, but you can't see, see them. So... It's about looking at the evidence that you have at the time and making the best judgment of what you can, the best hypothesis. Yeah. And yeah, especially inside of the cell, it seems like like you, you have various indirect ways of visualizing these, but it seems like one of the most difficult things in the world is seeing it in its native context, which might mean everything in terms of the chemistry of the cell. And one thing that you mentioned I wanted to, uh, before we moved past this too far, was that the pH can affect whether these structures form or unfold, I guess, fold or unfold. Mm-hmm. How variable is the pH inside of 
different cells at any given moment. Is this something that swings wildly from individual to vi- individual or time of day? Or I, I just I genuinely don't know, and I'm curious. So this is a this is a question that I don't think has actually been well resolved. Hmm. So there are there are schools of thought that state that cells are maintained at pH seven point four ish. You know, and there are some reports that cancer cells are more acidic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also some reports that say that the extracellular matrix is more acidic, but the inside of the cells is not. Mm. And um, people aren't really in agreement on it. Um, so I, th- I do think it's an open question. Mm. Um, and even if general generally the overall internal compartments of the cell you could say oh yes well it is ph 7.4 you don't know what the localized ph of any single point is right really and people are developing probes to be able to test that but even that you know they've got to be they've got to be small to to understand what the localized ph is going to be i was what about nmr or something that's uh you could, yeah, I'm trying to think of a way that we could look at that. Well, there's, I mean, I know that there's been some, um, if you do, do so let's take a step back. Do you think that you can use the redox state of the cell as a proxy for pH or no? It, in some respects, that's, I guess that's what people do for, for, certain, for certain cell types. But again, individual parts of the cell are going to have localized environments that are going to be I think very different. Um, and I think that's why people can measure things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's representative of what, what is there. And so that's, that's why I think there's still a debate. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, there's some movement towards creating these sorts of uh, small molecule redox probes where you put them inside the cell and they're able to change the, their fluorescence based mm-hmm. off of the conditions within the cell but everything that I've seen so far like we tried to use them in my lab when I was in grad school and they were very they were very finicky they were very prone to sort of incomprehensible results that didn't really give you what you were looking for and I think that that's kind of the problem when we start talking about well what is happening inside of a cell because the me- the methods that we have are generally methods that are good at taking bulk quantities of something and being able to say that like well look we have some amount of stuff and we can tell you something about it but when you start to get so small as to the order of like a specific area of the cell you kind of start to lose the thread of for me I think even sort of techniques that you could imagine being functional enough to report something back to you yeah I would agree and actually you know you might have a probe that works well in dilute solution and you know, under conditions that you can control. But in the cell, it's very crowded molecularly. There's there's a lot of stuff there. And what might be really useful in a dilute solution is not gonna, may not work in the same way in the cell because it's very crowded. And it might bind with a protein and do something else that's weird or, you know, and you can't test against every protein or every lipid or other biological mm-hmm. molecule that it can potentially encounter. And some of these probes, they like certain parts of the cell more than others because, you know, if some, if your probe is very uh, hydrophobic or lipophilic, it's going to go 
it's going to go to places where it's lipophilic. The cells also going to then make modifications to your, you know, your probe. As soon as something goes in, that cell's going to be like, what is this? (laughs) What is this? (laughs) Don't think this should be here. And then things start getting metabolized and things like that. So, which is natural. So we've got to bear these things in mind when we're making these types of probes. And that's why whenever you're looking at a problem, it's always good to look at it using different things, different methods. And then you can say, okay, well, none of these methods individually is telling me something sort of particularly noteworthy. But actually, as we gradually build up the picture around, this makes it more clear. But you're right, the pH, the pH of the cells is 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 a very interesting and open question it's not one that i've really i started reading the literature about this and i'm like oh i can't really agree so i'm gonna just not touch that (laughs) because i think sometimes people would say oh well we're working on iot because blah 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 people have said this and i look at that and i'm like "Mm, a lot of people say the opposite so (laughs) and that's the you could say that about any science you know but i just think you just need to be careful about making statements because sometimes statements that aren't accurate can be propagated in the literature and actually if you then go back to the original paper I'm like they didn't say that at all Mm. actually you're just wishful thinking we've seen this happen a few times um it brings up this really interesting moment that we're at in science right now where there's so much information and finding a systematic way of pulling patterns out of that greater sea of information is really going to be an interesting hurdle for the next generation. Um, the, the conflicting information might not be that one person is right and the other person is wrong. It could very well be, like you said, that the sort of the, the cytoplasm is so variable that both groups are right. And how do you actually create something meaningful out of that? And if you want to address these problems technologically in the future, particularly gene expression problems, things that are ultimately regulated at such complex degrees you're going to need to regulate the pattern rather than the actual instances you know you can turn on and off this gene and that gene but if there's a whole concert like a whole orchestra of occurrences including the shape change of the dna well you need to really be on the lookout for sculpting these these greater broader patterns and yeah i'm I'm really curious what you think the future will look like in terms of putting all these pieces of information in one place <laughs> carnage carnage. <laughs> carnage absolute carnage mayhem no, just just uh mayhem absolutely um i do you know i do think that we're getting towards um like looking at things there's kind of the top down approach and the bottom up approach and sort of going from what you know and then trying to make it more complicated in a biological context but then it's also then taking all of this data and then trying to decipher something meaningful out of it. And I do think that computational abilities are really moving forwards. There's there's a lot of people using machine learning to try and solve some of these problems and find patterns that you know we can't actually see or visualize, but a computer, once they figured it all out, can. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting moving forward. Um, a lot more availability of data now 
so people used to do lots of big experiments but kind of keep the data to themselves but there's a big movement towards being more open about data and it being available for others to use and the availability of all of that data is sometimes quite overwhelming you know where do you go like and in particular for work on the human genome um so in the UK we have a project run by Genomics England where they initially wanted to do 100,000 to like um, determine the sequence for 100,000 people that their genomes, so the 100,000 genomes project. And they're going forward with that. And the our National Health Service was going to be um, taking or getting the genome, genomic information from all newborns. COVID's kind of put some of these some of these uh, ideas kind of off the rails for a little bit, but actually the, the, the real potential of being able to kind of using that anonymized data to work out actually, well, this person has this illness and this person has this illness. They don't know that it's kind of related to this other thing that connects them, you know, being able to make those connections in that data is going to be really, really exciting moving forwards. Um, so I do think the future is going to be a lot more computational. It's going to involve a lot of a lot of information that perhaps people might be feeling uncomfortable with hmm. others, you know, knowing. I think there's there's people have some real worries about well, if they know my genome, well, what what else are they going to do with that data? And um, but for if that data remains anonymized, then I think we can learn a whole lot from it and you know it's 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 ripe for the picking and it brings up this other idea that there's almost a new class of scientists emerging which are analyzing the other scientists work like there's this meta science which is becoming more and more important as the data science improves where and this is kind of a dream come true in a sense because you know it's always the dream to remove the biases from the scientists who are doing their work so that you know they're not interpreting it just so they can get a new grant or something. And so it's really cool that you have these data scientists coming forth who are digging through other people's research and trying to pull patterns out and see what's happening and what's what's not working methodologically. And I think it's a really good sign, actually. But the question... Yeah, I agree. The question is, does it capture things that we don't know to look for yet, right? Because you say that perhaps B-form DNA is not the default helix. You suggest that perhaps the sort of the way that transcription factors bind is not the way that we think that they bind. And does having these reams and reams and reams of data drive you towards reimagining paradigms? Or is there a significant danger of allowing the sort of the tidal wave of information to overwhelm a theoretical turnover because because to, to my mind concept it is a really big concept but like to my mind i i imagine that there I, I worry about this sometimes where you basically have a situation where you collect data and you analyze it according to a model that has been established and the model is very very functional and it allows you to sort of to make a lot of conclusions and it allows you to draw parallels and it allows you to create a map. But in reality, it's functional despite the fact that it hides a 
fundamental error in the model itself. Does that make sense? Don't you think that meta-analyses would, would deal with that to some extent? I don't know. There's a really good meme about meta-analyses, which is, um, it's one of those, like, on the left side, it's, uh, there's this guy who looks like he's in front of, like, a, an airplane window. And um, it's, like, the, and so the meta-analysis is is him, like, in front of the airplane window. And then it zooms out, and it's actually him holding up, like, a toilet seat cover in front of, like, a picture of an airplane. And it's, like, that's the that's the papers that are actually inside the meta-analysis. And I think you can have a lot of junk that goes into a meta-analysis, and it doesn't necessarily solve the question of how good is the information that you're looking at, because there's this tendency for us to be, like, sufficient quantities of information will lead us to the right answer. You also you do have the opportunity though to see data like to see studies that are outliers, right? Or you know, these studies contradict these studies. You do, you do. And Maybe I guess this method is less reliable or this group is less reliable. Yeah. I, I guess I worry that a, a significant quantity of sequencing information could obscure the importance of discovering ways in which DNA works that aren't the conventional way. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could see it, see it that way, but I don't think we're ever going to get people just working on one area. You're mm. always going to get a mixture of people. Like at the moment, I'm not, I'm not doing anything in that area. I'm kind of interested in the the bits that I'm doing, and you'll always have that in science. You're never going to get everybody just doing one thing. And I think that's good. I think that's good that people do different things, that they're interested in different things. I sometimes think that, you know, funding could be a little bit more diverse in what it wants to, you know, what we're funding, rather than kind of forcing people to kind of chase pots of money. Um, blue sky thinking is really um, required in science. And, you what know, is that? trying to think about things different. Sorry? I said I've never heard the term blue sky thinking. Blue sky thinking. It's like thinking of, um, so you would use that term for um, doing science for curiosity's sake rather than kind of looking for a particular application. Mm -hmm. It's like, so why is the sky blue? Mm. Like, you know, some people, some people might say, well, it's not going to change cars. What's the point? Carry on, or you know, do something, do do some application. I think those um, are engineers, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So so curiosity driven science, I guess, is probably a more accurate way of way of describing describing it and actually thinking about things and trying to think outside the box rather than be kind of swept along with the latest craze. Um. I guess that's, I, I think that strikes exactly at what I was trying to say is that the sort of the sequencing and these like huge agglomerations of genomes seem like they're projects that draw a lot of money. And they do seem a little bit like a craze where people are like, you know, we'll unlock something very fundamental by being able to aggregate all of this data. But I, I suppose my fear is the fact that it would, because it, it I, I wish that science wasn't a zero sum game, but it often does feel like a zero sum game where I'm like, look, there's a limited pot of money. And when you're like, look, shiny, flashy computer sequencing, it, I, I imagine that there's, there's a risk that it would draw that pool of money in that direction rather than allowing it to remain in the hands of, of the blue sky research, right? 
Yeah, so I mean, I mean, blue sky research is really is really about kind of thinking of new ideas and thinking of you know what what is why is this happening? You know, rather than kind of looking at applications, just looking at tr- trying to kind of broaden the edge, um, thinking about things differently. Um, but then, ha- I think sometimes funders are really kind of thinking about what what what's the application of that and what can we do with it but actually sometimes the application of an idea comes 50 years later or several very creative scientific concepts suddenly become a new way to do something that's really important I think trying to kind of connect science with an immediate application can sometimes be beneficial but also can sometimes actually stop us from looking at the new things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, it also and is, it, sort of confuses people about what science is, right? You know, people, will, we, we, we love to talk to uh, people in all sorts of cutting edges, especially this comes up in physics all the time, where people will be, uh, you know, be like, well, we don't really understand, like, what causes this phenomenon. They'll be like, oh, well, we have, you know, GPS or we have all these technologies. And it's like, well, the ability to instrument, like electric current's a great example. We just did an episode on electric current. And, you know, obviously, since we're talking from thousands of miles away to each other, we're very good as human beings at manipulating electricity. But there's a great deal of confusion as to what is actually happening inside of a wire, despite how, you know, physically, what is the picture of what's happening? What is the scientific mechanism of what's happening? It's not so clear, actually. And so there's, there's this huge conflation of science with technology in the general public and really among a lot of scientists as well you know and it's funny because you'll see a research institute and it'll be like the blank and blank research institute of science and technology right they, they do people do on some part of their brain recognize that science and technology are separate things but at the end of the day when you're applying for money it's like everyone's like well tell us what we can do what can we make out of this science you know <laughs> so it's it's kind of a, it's the confusion. It's a cultural confusion in a way, I think. Yeah. Do you feel the pressure in your own work to, to sort of to play to that? Hmm, that's kind of an interesting one. I think because, because there's a, almost a direct application of things that I do that I've not really, it's not something that I've made a concern about. There was a, right at the start of my career, there was this whole, my motifs don't exist they only form acidic pH, so they're not physiologically relevant type thing that I had kind of had to argue against. But um, I, I guess that that's not relating to application. That was more relating to don't believe that these things exist type thing, which is more of the issue that I've had in my career so far. So you've been fortunate um, enough that people care about the science enough to, uh, to fund you for this. Yeah, I still, still, despite some people are like, these things don't exist, so let's not bother. Um, but not everybody's like that. Some people have the open mind. And actually, it's, I, I think we should all have the open mind, you know. That's why, you know, I find the whole the difficulty with persuading people or persuading funders to give you money. Like, sometimes I think, well, actually what I think I'm doing is really interesting, but the next person along there, I might not think it's interesting. They might not think it's interesting, but actually that could be the next life-changing medicine or the next thing, but we just don't know it yet. Mm. We don't know 
what we don't know mm-hmm. and that's the problem and and, and that's why we need explorers right that's why that's why it is actually worth funding exploration because Ex- yeah. yeah so so funding creative you know new creative ideas or new scientific concepts or looking at looking for things that we don't yet fully understand or we, we can't plan what the outcomes are going to be that type of curiosity driven blue sky research um i think it's really important but also it's very difficult to get funded because funders want to know well does is it going to work mm-hmm. otherwise this might be a waste of what well, might be a waste of money like well it might i don't know it's high risk high reward i guess yeah is there is there a discipline that you look at where you think that it will be very important for the future that's not getting that that hasn't yet gotten the attention that it deserves oh that's a difficult question yeah i don't i don't mean i don't mean to drop you that that on the top of your head like that out of the blue i guess i i just i often wonder where it's like you know we're we're entering into a phase of bioinformatics and sequencing and these sort of big computer we're entering into the computer era of science, which is going to uncover a lot of these connections. Like you were saying that, you know, we, we don't necessarily even have the ability to know we're there right at this moment, simply because we don't have the volume of, of genomes that are necessary for creating these correlations. And so does that mean that sort of, if people are looking to go into science or looking to understand science or looking to participate in science, should they be veering in the direction of statistics and bioinformatics and, and programming? Or is there still the sort of the hard wet lab science of, of bench work that still has a huge, that, that still has a revolution ahead inside of it? Because it seems like this question of how do we look inside of cells has not yet been answered. And so my question is, do you think that we will head in the direction of figuring out tighter and tighter ways to look inside of cells? Or will the focus start to shift more towards, well, let's analyze what we have because we have this huge backlog of information that we need to process to get something meaningful out of it? I don't think data scientists are going through, oh, there's a massive backlog we need to get through this. <laughs> I mean, kind of, there, there is a massive backlog of things that you can do. And I think there's great potential for people that are, interested in informatics I do think moving forward that you if I was training now I would really want to be doing more bioinformatics because I do see it as the future even if you're doing wet lab um and I think it's gonna they're gonna go hand in hand and the next generation of scientists it's just it's going to be a hygiene factor in their training that they are they're not just going to do stats or you know if they're a biologist for example they're also going to do sort of learning how to program and learning how to process these large amounts of data and it's just going to be second nature to them I think that's kind of the way things are going moving forward but then techniques that make things easy just sort of revolutionize what people do in the labs day to day you know something that might have taken somebody who was working alongside me in the lab months can now you can just send it off and get the answer a day later like for cheap mm-hmm. um, and that's just always going to happen we're always going to have new methods to make things a bit easier I don't think that's going to stop people doing wet, wet lab experiments I think they're essential and I think people are interested in them and if people are interested in them then you'll have people working on them 
through some way or another. Yeah, like that. So I wanted to ask you, uh, we've been talking thus far about exclusively about these alternative structures in humans, but I noticed that you had also done some work, was it in, in, in agriculture, right? That had sort of, not in agriculture, but that had some interesting uh, implications perhaps for agriculture, particularly with the, uh, was it the, the nitrate utilization and, and the excess, uh, the, excess bacterial growth in the soil and do you, can can you talk about that a little bit it was quite fascinating because uh one thing i didn't realize is that this uh nitrous was it nitrous oxide or uh was a greenhouse gas and it was actually something like 300 times more uh radiative potential uh for trapping uh heat than you know carbon dioxide which is generally thought of as our as our big baddie in the room can you speak to that briefly? It's it's quite a fascinating story from what I can tell. Yeah, sure. So this is work that I do in collaboration with a fantastic scientist at the University of East Anglia called uh, Dr. Andrew Gates. And we work in collaboration with Professor David Richardson on this. So they are they they are um focused on the microbiology and interested in the bacteria, the soil bacteria, and also how they respire and how they grow and how that affects um, the um, the soil, but also how it affects the atmosphere. And I'm obviously interested in the DNA structures. And I met Andy at an event where he obviously knew that his uh, bacteria were doing these weird things. And I was talking about my weird DNA. And he was just like, I think there might be a connection here, which is kind of cool. Hmm. So the so the bacteria that we're looking at is a model soil bacterium called Paracoccus denitrificans. And this bacteria can essentially can grow on ammonium and it uses its ammonium. It uses ammonium to make its amino acids and it's like all of its like biological materials. It uses it's a source of nitrogen, but it can also grow on nitrate, which is obviously a fertilizer and we are using fertilizers all across the world and actually using those fertilizers affects the way those bacteria grow affects the way that they respire and um we're looking at the relationship between um the different types of nitrogen that they're able to grow on how they process that and then what the output is so in some some ways they can make nitrous oxide and as you pointed out this is a global warming gas it actually it contributes i think about 17 percent of full global warming um emissions mm. which is quite quite a quite a big lot for something that you've not most people have not heard of they're like oh we've had a common dark so we know that's bad we also know that methane's bad because you know cows and things like that and this is a this is a topic that comes up on the show all the time is how humans are fixated when it comes to environmentalism it's like well we got one thing it's called carbon dioxide and if we just deal with that you know everything will be fine and it's um it's an unfortunate myth that i think persists especially in political realms but even among scientists where it's like there's just a a litany of, of chemicals that are very concerning to say the least 
And um, yeah, I, I was shocked. I haven't heard about nitrous oxide. Uh, so please continue. Yeah. So I mean, we so we were we were looking at a we found a quadruplex in front of some genes that enabled that bacteria to grow on nitrate. So the bacteria can grow on uh, ammonium, and it just takes the ammonium in, uses it. Uh, but if it wants to use the nitrate, it has to convert it to ammonium. And then to do that, it uses some proteins. And I think in the paper that you've probably found, those proteins were in the NAS operon. So we found that there was a quadruplex nicely positioned to control that um, the expression of those proteins. And we showed that by adding compounds that we know stabilize that quadruplex we can stop that, stop the expression of those proteins and then be able to stop the bacteria from growing on nitrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we could compare that actually. So we grew them in nitrate and we grew them in ammonium and we were able to see the quadruplex specific effect because the ammonium growth was unaffected by these compounds. So we're also, we're funded at the moment by the BBSRC to look at other genes relating to this process. So that's something we're looking at in more detail. Are you, are you worried about those compounds affecting other things in the soil, like the plants themselves? Or do you think it's fairly we specific? We haven't thrown them on any, any bits of soil so far. Fair enough. Um, what we think we've, at the moment, we're kind of trying to understand how these processes work. And it might be that there are um, some native compounds or natural natural compounds that we could use or some other triggers that we could use that we you know that we could explore um but we at the moment again trying to understand how it works and once you understand how something works then you can then think actually if we want to stop this from happening what's the best way we can do it mm-hmm. well in some sense bacteria are a fantastic effector system because you you know you're you're talking about molecular regulation and what better place you know you see an effect and you think all right these bacteria are doing some behavior a very simple behavior that that is sort of maybe not desirable in this farm field uh it seems like your intuition is well this is such a common regulatory mechanism we don't know much about it it's probably happening there it really just throws up in the door to where where else in the world this is has extraordinarily important implications that we haven't even begun to uncover. So I, I'm really fascinated to see what comes of this uh, as the years wind on. Thank you. Well, we, we are obviously interested. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be here. Um, but I do think there are a lot of other bacteria um, in particular, I think will probably have some fascinating uses for DNA secondary structures because mm. obviously bacteria have a very small amount of non-coding DNA. So if there is a structure there, like it's probably going to be functional mm. because otherwise the bacteria would have got rid of it a long time ago because the more obstructions there are in their DNA, the, the slower it is going to them to divide and obviously there's this sort of selection pressure that the quicker bacteria can divide the the evolutionary advantages that they're going to have because the, the quicker you divide, the more mutations you're going to get, the better 
the better you can become, essentially. Well, the annoying thing is that it seems like the more that you molecularly target fast-growing systems like cancer or bacteria, the quicker they're going to evolve solutions to that problem. And you kind of fight this yep. war of uh, this, like, this just ongoing feedback loop. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if that can be just another tool in in the toolkit, you know, just like in situations where antibiotics become useless uh, due to this same sort of evolutionary procedure, maybe uh, a targeting some of these structures will provide a nice backup in medicine. Who knows? Well, we'll see. We'll see. It's certainly something that I'm interested in and a lot of other people are interested in. And it might it might be that actually it's it doesn't it doesn't come to anything, but I don't think that that's likely because I think there's a lot of potential for lots of different opportunities that these structures can bring. Cool. Well, I think it's really interesting stuff. I am very much looking forward to seeing how this plays out in the biomedical world, agriculture, and just from a scientific level, it really just opens up the the wonder sense of wonder for how unendingly complex these uh these entities that we are really really can be down on a physical level and um yeah thank you for sharing all of this with us today i really appreciate learning these things yeah Uh, thank you so much for having me and having the opportunity to talk talk science it was was good yeah and i just want to add that you have a youtube channel and you do this really wonderful thing that i wish all scientists would do which is you try to prepare a very short five minute presentation for for some of your papers as they come out in in layman's terms which i think is super valuable i I hope that you spread the word so that all scientists will take a a page from your playbook there and, and get with it um, that's a really wonderful thing in terms of motivating the next generation of researchers and even allowing uh, people who are, you know, tangentially interested to familiarize themselves with your work. So I, I really applaud your effort there and everybody should go out and check out your YouTube channel. Is there somewhere else people can find you? Do you have, you have a lab website? Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the name of the YouTube channel? Oh, right. I think uh, I'm at Dr. Zoe Waller I, and same on, it's the same on Twitter. I just try to keep it consistent. Okay. Um, I do have. Um, I just have my departmental website based based on UCL. I don't have my own personal research website yet. Um, it's just with every, every. I do so many other things like running a running a website, a personal website as well, on top of everything else. Fair enough. Can't do Indeed, no, yeah. Can. All right, Doctor Waller. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you and so much. We'll hope to catch up with you later down the line. Thank you very much for having me and take care. You as well. Bye. Bye.